It is good to worship together, village, and be a family together. I, I, um, Pastor Andrew stole a lot of my thoughts, <laughs> borrowed about worship. Um, I just sat there amazed at the cross, amazed at the work of Christ. We talked about being made new. We talked about being brought from death to life. We, we talked about being brought into the light. We talked about Jesus taking God's wrath so we can be saved, and that is amazing. And this morning, my, as we talk through the Second Corinthians and where we're at, I hope that, that those songs resonate in our ears. I hope we don't forget those because that's the foundation of what Paul wants to share with us in Second Corinthians today. Being so transformed by the victory of God and victory of Christ that it affects every part of our life. And, and the illustration he uses has to do with smell. And one of my titles, the early titles for this morning was Smelly People. Or stinky people. Um, I thought about saying, how many of you smell this? No. um, (laughs) But the title this morning is Have an Aroma. And so it's sort of a nice way of saying we need to be smelly people. We're at a stage in our family where our boys are, are moving from childhood to that tween stage. And as some of those changes happen in the body, there's something that happens with body odor. Can we talk about body order this morning? And, and there's times that they're like, I don't need a shower, but you haven't taken a shower in two weeks. I don't need a shower. <laughs> Mommy and daddy take a shower every day. And, 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 and you stink. And so we're like, go straight to the shower. Do not pass go. Go directly there. And I know you guys appreciate this because I watch what happens when I bring students home from the college camping trip. <laughs> and back when we do mission trips before showers. And, and I watch, and we come into the, the parking lot there, and the kids get out of the car, and they're like, my parents are here, and they run up and give you a hug. <laughs> and we don't notice it because we've all been camping for four days together. And, and mom and dad's like, and, and, and you guys do, you stand sort of at a distance from each other as we're, we're, we're greeting, and, and I know it's because we smell. On the way out, the door, the windows are down and it's like, oh, they just want to say goodbye. No, the windows are down for other reasons because smell permeates, right? And, and smell just sort of spreads. You can't be, be smelly now and not be smelly five minutes from now. You, you can't just uh, avoid the smell in a room because it spread and diffuses throughout all the air in the room. And that's the imagery that we want to come to the passage today. You're probably thinking, I have no idea what, that that's even in scripture. Well, it is. We're going to get there today. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're starting at verse 12 today and going through chapter 3, um, somewhere around verse 6. And, and Paul here, th- this is a transitional point in the book. Up until now, he's been dealing with some of the introductory issues that were between him and the church in Corinth. And you've heard me talk about the conflict between he and Corinth, and it had escalated and escalated and escalated to where Paul couldn't even visit, and he's written a severe letter. And 2 Corinthians is a story of reconciliation. It's a story of what can happen when the Holy Spirit works. And so Paul started by dealing with some of the issues that were still remaining. And and two weeks ago, we saw how he explained himself and clarified in conflict and showed love in conflict. Last week, we talked about forgiveness and resolution in conflict and coming with open arms to each other and saying, if God forgives you, how dare I not forgive you? This week now, he transitions into what I would call more the reconciliation phase 
as he begins to paint a picture and transition into painting a picture of what this church means to God, what their ministry means to God, that they are still valuable, that they are still important, that the relationship can be healed and they are useful to God. So as a transition passage, there's several different thoughts, and I hope we tie them together into being an aroma. And, and how can we be a people that smell and, and in a good way? And we'll, we'll talk about that. You're not going to forget some of, the, some of that. Um, and so Paul is painting a different picture of what this can look like. So let's start with verse 12 of chapter 2. And, and he's, he's transitioning here. He comes back to some of his travel plans. When I came to Torres to preach the gospel of Christ... Even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. And to understand these two verses, we have to understand sort of some of the history that I just gave and the timeline we talked about in the introduction. And if you remember, Paul had... had visited Corinth. It had not gone well. They had opposed him. There was someone there that came out against him. He came back to Ephesus and said, I'm not going to return until some things are resolved. And he wrote a very severe letter. Well, the story that comes into this is he sent the severe letter to Corinth. He sent it with Titus. And so he has not heard back at this point what the results were. Or, or he's describing when he hadn't heard back. And so imagine you have this, this conflict with a church you founded, with people you love. You send somebody with a really tough letter. And they haven't gotten back. And his heart is anxious. And he had arranged with Titus, it looks like, to go up to Turas. And if, if you remember, we have Ephesus on one side and Corinth on the other side of the sea. And, and you could go up and around. And Troas is straight up from Ephesus on the way to Macedonia and then back down to Corinth. And so he had arranged to meet with Titus at Troas. And what this verse says is he comes to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ. And he doesn't find Titus there. And his heart is grieved. And we get insight into his pastoral heart. You know, some, some of you as parents of older teens, you can remember the first time you started letting them go out at night. What do you do before they get back? You worry, don't you? I can remember coming back home and mom's sitting out there. She's like, no, I'm not worried. <laughs> Just wanted to have some hot chocolate with you when you got home. No, we, as parents, we worry because someone we love is off into the unknown. And, and that's a little bit of the heart that we see of, of Paul here. He comes to Taras to preach the gospel of Christ. A door is open for him in the Lord. Same words he used for Ephesus. That means people are responding. It's good. Ministry is good. But there's this conflict that is unresolved that he can't get his mind off of. He loves Corinth. He loves Titus. And he doesn't know what's going on there. Titus, just a couple things about Titus. Interesting, if you look through the New Testament, Paul seemed to always give Titus the tough assignments. It gives, you, it gives us insight into who he was. You know, go to Crete. There's problems there. Deal with them and appoint elders and make the church healthy again. And, and some other cases where Titus was sent into these tough situations. What a man that Paul felt he could send a severe letter and say, go help make things right with Corinth. A peacemaker a speaker of truth, a speaker of truth and love. Just we'll get there a little bit later when we get to 2 Corinthians 7, but I want, I want to just flip over to 2 Corinthians 7 because we do actually know the end of this story and that helps us understand 2 Corinthians. 
And Paul is describing before he knew, but in 2 Corinthians we find out that Paul eventually did leave, go to Macedonia. And he says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. Verse 5. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear and within, and fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And interestingly enough, in verse 5 there, we see just how troubled Paul's heart was because he loved the people he ministered to. No rest, afflicted at every turn, fighting without, fear within. And we might say, wow, Paul was a wimp. He was a weakling. No, Paul loved the people he ministered to. And that's what it means to minister, and that's what it means to love. But then in verse 6, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. So Paul ends up leaving Troas, going over to Macedonia, meets up with Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he has comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. What an incredible key verse to understand 2 Corinthians. Titus comes back. And says, it went well. It went well. The people you love at Corinth, they mourned and they grieved and they repented. Yeah, they're not perfect. We see that in 2 Corinthians. None of us are. We're all being transformed in in degree by degree. But they love you, Paul. And they repented. And things are going to be okay. And Paul says, that's what stirred his heart so that I rejoiced still more. And so that's the picture of the story that 2 Corinthians is written out of. It's written as reconciliation of moving forward past conflict. And so back to, to 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 and 3, or 12 and, 12 and 13. My spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. A couple of things that we can get out of these two verses. Point number one there, conflict distracts from ministry. Conflict distracts from ministry. Let's take care of them quickly. Let's take care of conflict quickly because it always distracts. It always keeps us. It stopped Paul's ministry at Troas. Think about that for a minute. Conflict distracts. And we have to decide... Is my conflict more important or is the work of God more important? We see here the heart of Paul. A heart of pastoral anxiety, one of the authors wrote, which I thought was a good description. Pastoral anxiety, later in 2 Corinthians 11.28, he says there's daily pressure on him for the anxiety he has for all the churches. And this isn't just for pastors. My challenge to us is, as ministers, all of us as ministers, all of you about to go to Sunday school and teach, some that are already there, those that are in nursery, those that are in Awana this week, you cannot minister well without your heart being involved. You can't. That's, that's the lesson from Paul. If you don't care about the people you're ministering to, I'd rather you not minister to them. Even if you are the most incredible teacher, it has to come from a ministry heart from a heart of love. And we see that in Paul. You cannot minister without your heart being involved. 
Second thing we learn out of this is church strife never advances the gospel. Church strife never advances the gospel. Now, how do we balance that? Because we are all messy, sinful people. Every one of us in this room. And so there's going to be strife. There's going to be conflict. We handle that by saying, we will deal with this. We will not let this stop the gospel. Paul had to move. He says, I have to find out what happened. I have to deal with this. I have to hear from Titus. Then my heart is ready to minister. It's a very personal thing to serve and love in a church. Our hearts are on the line. Every one of you, when you minister to those kids, when you minister in the adult classes, when you come to community group and open up to each other, we're laying our hearts on the line to each other and trusting each other with our hearts. Let's preserve each other's hearts well. This is a very personal point to me because my heart is here. My heart is yours. I love you guys. And it is a joy to serve together as a pastor and a congregation. Let's make sure we don't give Satan a foothold and move to Macedonia if we have to to make sure things are right. Conflict distracts from ministry. Let's take care of it quickly. Number two, fearlessly make every part of your life smell of Jesus' victory. And here we get to the imagery of smell. And the, the sub point there is he's already won. Let's start reading at verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance, fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To another, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? And Paul now, after dealing with some of the conflict, he comes back and says, but thanks be to God. He's able to give thanks in everything. And he's seeing what can happen as his relationship with Corinth is restored. And so he comes to a positive note about God's victory. Even in discouraging times, and he, he mentioned his affliction in Asia and the conflict and suffering, even in all that, he says, God wins. God wins. And I, I don't care what we're going through this morning, God wins. His word will go forth. His <laughs> people will be saved. And we want to be part of that. Paul is still able to see God working in ministry. What an amazing thing. To understand these verses, we have to sort of understand what's being talked about in the triumphal procession there. And in, in Rome, in, in, in their army, and we're, we're under the, the, uh, the rule of Rome at this point, they had this concept of a parade or a triumphal procession. And it was a Roman victory parade. There were certain requirements for it, which are really interesting that Paul says we get to be part of this. One of the requirements was it had to be a complete victory. It had to be a decisive victory and it had to advance the territory of Rome. So it had to add new territory to Rome. And, and so the people reading this at Corinth would have understood all that. They're a Roman province. And, and so what would happen is the general from this war, where there was a decisive victory and, and where there was an advancement of their kingdom, the general would ride first. And he'd be in his chariot and four horses, and he dressed a certain way. And then behind him would often be his sons, if he had sons that were part of it, and then the soldiers of the army. 
And then in this parade would be all the loot that they had gotten, artwork, gold, whatever treasures they had gotten. They would parade it in front of the people as a sign of victory. And then they would take the captives, oftentimes the rulers of of the territory they captured first, they would take the captives, sometimes in chains, sometimes actually we, we know from historical documents they would dress them up in festive garb and make them walk in this parade. Really interesting stuff. And then they would go to the temple of Jupiter, one of their gods, and they would execute the prisoners. Or they would sell them into slavery. And this was a way of Rome exerting its power, exerting its influence, and and really instituting, I would argue, fear in the people that look at how powerful we are. But really, it's a celebration of their victory. And Paul just sort of turns that completely. And he uses something they knew and something they, they probably hated, and he uses it to illustrate God's victory. And so understand that then when we say, but... But thanks be to God who in Christ, in the power of the cross, all the things we sang about today, always leads us in triumphal procession. And the picture here is of Christ leading his army in victory. And it's a ticker tape parade like we just saw for whatever team won the Super Bowl. Sorry, Jimmy. <laughs> and we saw this whole parade, and this was a parade on steroids. It was amazing, and the, the pomp and the circumstance. And, and the picture is Jesus is the general, and he's leading his army. And there's, there's all kinds of debate. Commentaries are about split on who we are and, and who Paul is saying. Some say, well, Paul is saying he's the slave and the captives. And others say, well, he's part of the soldiers of Christ. And I would argue with the soldiers of Christ. If you look at the whole context of the passage... It's very difficult to see slave there, especially when it says that the fragrance to them is death to death. But I, I would argue that it's, it's us as believers that are in this victory parade that the general has led to victory. His power has given victory. And then the people behind are the people who have rejected the king and rejected Christ, rejected salvation. And another interesting note to, to understand this passage and where we get the whole smelly stuff is one of the things they would do is as this procession went through, all the people that lived alongside would burn incense. And then they would get to the temple of the god Jupiter and they would burn incense as a sign of worship. And so this whole parade stunk. Well, I hate incense, so that stunk to me. Some people probably thought it was an amazing smell. And so everyone there could smell it and it permeated everything and everybody knew who won and who lost. Now think about that when Paul says you need to be smelly people. He's talking about that incense, that aroma. And so let's read some of these verses again who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us. And and he's introducing the idea that we are his ambassadors and we are his agents. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And just as in that parade, everyone in town could smell the aroma and they knew what had happened and they knew that the general was victorious. Jesus is saying through you, through your lives, through your actions, everybody should know who Jesus is. 
everybody should know who wins. The thing about fragrance is you can't turn it off and on. My, my kids can't have BO5 now and then not have it later today unless there's some action that, that happened in between there. We're to be a fragrance and aroma all the time. It's pervasive. It spreads. A couple things as we read on. For we are the aroma of Christ to God. And, and we're going to see three different ways that we're to be an aroma. Three different um, directions that that aroma travels, that that smell travels. The first one there is mentioned to God. And he switches to use the word aroma rather than fragrance. Fragrance was a term used of incense. Aroma, incidentally, was used for sacrifice. And the sacrificial system, as they would burn the, the animals, it became an aroma to God. Uh, of, of our submission to him and sacrifice for sins. And so we read, for we are the aroma of Christ to God. It reminds me of Romans 12, 1 and 2. When we think of, okay, what pleases God? What is an aroma to God? Christ-like lives please God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice with an aroma and all holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. God isn't looking for us to sacrifice animals. Some of you probably have some neighbor's animals you'd wish you could sacrifice to God. God isn't looking for that. He's looking for a heart and a soul in wholehearted devotion to him. That is an acceptable sacrifice to him. And so when we think of God's victory, when we think of how we're sharing that with others, Part of that is an act of worship. It pleases God. You want to know how to please God? Be an aroma for Christ. Our sharing of the gospel is an act of worship. When I think of this part of this verse, I think of the question of myself, is what I'm doing an aroma to God? Is it pleasing to God? As I go to work tomorrow, I get tomorrow off. As I go to work Tuesday, is what I'm doing pleasing to God? As you interact with your, your office workers, as you go home and interact with your family, is what I'm doing pleasing to God? If, if we ask that question every moment of the day of everything we do, our lives would be an amazing sacrifice to God. Just the simple question, am I pleasing God right now? Will God like the smell of what I'm doing? What does that do for sin in our lives? When we're tempted... What if we're tempted to, to go on the computer and look at pornography or something? Will God like that smell? Will it be a pleasing smell or will it be a wretched smell? That question begins to get to the heart of what is pleasing to God. But Paul goes on, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To another, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Think about the imagery of the parade, right? If you're on the winning side, what did the fragrance represent? We won! It's victory! We have more land! Yes! The people over us will be happy. If you're in the parade and you're part of the procession at the end and one of the captives... What does it represent? I'm about to die. I'm about to be executed. 
Same smell, same aroma, two different results depending on your response to the gospel, depending on your response to Christ. And so we look at both of those. We're an aroma to believers. And and I love how he describes that, a fragrance from life to life. And as we share Jesus with each other, as we sing incredible songs about Jesus, that should be an aroma of life. That should build us up. Don, can you put up the words of of Jesus died my soul to save? Verse 2, please. I just want to read these words. Atonement full applied to me. The blood that spilled at Calvary has swallowed all my guilt and shame now reconciled in Jesus' name. Victory. Guilt and shame is swallowed. For us, that's an incredible song, isn't it? It it, it did bring me to tears like you. I'm like, wow, what did my Savior do for me that I didn't deserve? And it reminded me of life. And I live for Him. Of joy. God is using us as an aroma to each other of life. And the question we ask on that aroma is, are we life givers in our interactions with each other? So we ask, how how does what I'm doing smell to God? How do I smell to the people around me? Tough question sometimes. Do I stink the place up sometimes? With my attitude, with my approach, with my interactions? Or am I bringing joy and blessing and peace? Not to stress the metaphor too far, but sometimes we need a shower before we come to church and before we're around each other. And that shower is the blood of Jesus Christ forgiving us so we can forgive others. But Paul goes on, says, we're also a fragrance to those who are perishing from death to death. And it's a smell of death to those who reject Christ. I I think of the other day there was um, some roadkill on our street. Um, a little cute possum. And my, my wife and kids, and especially the boys, I believe, decided that it shouldn't be on the street. And they brought it off the street because it was sort of, it was in the middle, it was gross, and they, they threw it in our trash can. And it was a week before trash day. And it got, by, by the end of, of five days, my kids wouldn't even go out back because it reeked of death. It just stunk. And so they were appalled by it. They stayed away from it. That's what I think of when I hear it's a fragrance from death to death. And unfortunately, the gospel to someone who has rejected it is that appalling. It's that confusing. The gospel is a dividing point. It demands a decision. Either we love it and accept it and let Christ change our lives or we get stubborn and we we get set in our ways and say, I am not going to believe. And we're choosing hell. And we're choosing death. And so this morning as we read that, I want to be crystal clear. Jesus died for your sins. We are sinners deserving of death. He died in our place. And we have a choice this morning. Do I accept it or do I reject it? And eternity depends for you depends on that choice. The gospel is a dividing line. You can't be neutral. 
You can't just sit here and wonder about the gospel and hope you're going to heaven. You're either in or you're out. I pray you're in. Because the work of Jesus Christ is such incredible life and such an incredible blessing in our lives. The gospel is divisive. One other note on that. The gospel is divisive. divisive. Don't let our manner be divisive. I don't need to, to turn someone away from the gospel because the manner in which I approach them. The gospel alone is convicting enough. I can love them, share the gospel, pray that they'll be in the kingdom. But we want to be careful of the manner, especially as we deal with some of the issues that are so prevalent and, and so in the forefront as we are in an election year. Last thought about this. We're to be an aroma to God, to believers, to unbelievers, to be smelly. Just run with the illustration this morning. (laughs) To be smelly people, we have to be totally about Jesus. We have to be all in. It has to be oozing out of every pore. I I don't know whether you've ever uh, eaten at, at certain places or certain types of food. There are some types of food that I'll come home and Susie will say, you had that today, didn't you? Because I... It oozes out of my pores. It smells. Well, if we are so about Jesus and ingesting the gospel and ingesting his word and thinking, how do I give glory to God? It will ooze out of your pores. You won't help but be smelly. And so that to me is the how. How can I be this kind of person? I better be just saturated with God. His word, music that talks about him books, other believers, saturate yourself with Jesus and then you'll smell like Jesus. Third point there as we move on. And and we're going to talk about point number three in two sections because it's in two sections of the passage. We can't do this on our own. We can't do this on our own. At the end of 16, what does Paul say? He's just given this amazing analogy that we're to smell up the world for Jesus. And he says, who's sufficient for these things? Who's competent? Who's able to do these things? And, and, and he has such a sense that his dependence is on God. And point number three there is we can't do it on our own. We're to be Christ-dependent, not self-sufficient. And we are a self-sufficient people. I am a self-sufficient person. I struggle with that. And God keeps pounding on me. Trust me. Rely on me. You can't do this on your own. But if you want to do something right, do it yourself, right? doesn't work with God. We need to be Christ-dependent, not self-sufficient. And so Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? He throws out a question, starts to answer it in 17, hits another topic, and then comes back to it in verse 4 of the next chapter. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And he begins to talk about some of the people that were agitators at Corinth, some of the people that were making accusations against him. They were these false teachers that had come in. And and they were only there to teach as long as you paid them, as long as you gave them money. We'll preach, we'll teach, yes. And as soon as the money dried up, see you later. That's not a heart of the pastor. That's not pastoral anxiety. That's not any of these things. But those people were saying, Paul's not the real teacher, we are. And so he says, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, we're sent by God. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. 
every word there oozes of dependence on God. Everything I do, God sees. Everything I speak, I want to be from Christ. God has sent me. So he's ministering by God's power. Recognizing he doesn't save people. You don't save people. I don't save people. The Holy Spirit saves people. We're just called to share the message. Let the general win the battle. We're going to come back to that point in in verse 4. Because Paul, when he talks about the peddlers of God's word, he interrupts a minute in verses 1 through 3 of the next chapter to talk about his heart again and, and how to evaluate his ministry. See, the people, one of the traditions of the time, and I'll I'll share this before we read the passages, it was often common that when someone was an itinerant teacher or or someone was coming to visit, that you would send a letter of commendation to them, much like our letters of recommendation. I I, I get requests for a lot of recommendations for a lot of you. (laughs) And I like chocolate chip cookies, and that's how you get a better recommendation. No. Um, And we, we see Apollos had one. Apollos was sent to Corinth with a letter of recommendation. You can read about that in Acts 18. Paul and Barnabas were sent out with a letter of recommendation in Acts 15. The, the book of Philemon, that's a letter of recommendation. That's a, that's a letter of commendation that was sent with Onesimus to Philemon on Onesimus' behalf. So, so that was a common thing. But what looks like ha- was happening is the, the false teachers... It looks like they had some false documents from the church in Jerusalem or people around Jerusalem that were saying, this is a good teacher. You should listen to him. And they were coming in and saying, look at our our credentials. Listen to us. Paul, at this point, while he may have had those at the beginning of his ministry at Corinth, he's now, he's established the church. He has a relationship. He's not bringing letters of commendation anymore. And the false teachers were probably saying, see, he doesn't even have a letter. He doesn't even have proof he's a good apostle or a true apostle. You should listen to us, not him. You see some of the conflict? So Paul here jumps into that issue in verses 1 through 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Really? Okay, that's my my little addition there. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. This is such a beautiful passage. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. We want to unpack this a little bit. But he begins, and he's sensitive to the accusation that he might be puffing himself up. He begins by saying, I don't, I don't want to have to commend myself again. But I am willing to defend for the sake of the gospel. And so he defends. And his point in number four there is, is that ministry with changed hearts is the goal. Minister with changed hearts is the goal and the evaluation. And he says, it's not about the letter. It's not about what other people say about me. It's about, is God doing a work in your heart? And he's, he, he's led a lot of these people to Christ. He's founded the church. And he says, look at your hearts. Look at what God has done in your lives. That's my proof of ministry. Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? For you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. When they heard that, they're probably going, whoa, we are? And he's sort of turning it back on them. 
You're, you're saying I'm not a real apostle? Look inside. Are you really saved? And so as we read this, we can, we can get several things out of this. We need to be focusing on what God is doing in hearts. As we evaluate any ministry here, as we evaluate our time, what is God doing in hearts? Are there changed hearts? Are people coming closer to Christ? He says, you're our letter of recommendation written on our hearts, talking about that relationship, to be known and read by all. And see, they, they would have understood this. One of, the, one of the things that would happen, if you remember, the, church, the, the city of Corinth had a, a strong patronage system and status was based on how many parties you could throw, how many um, servants you could have. And in fact, um, a couple of authors wrote inscriptions of self-commendation engraved in stone and proudly heralding the name of the benefactor have been found on monuments, temples, market stalls, and pavements. I got to think the guy that put his name on the pavement isn't as popular as the guy that put his eye on the mo- name on the monument. I, I get a stone versus I get this temple. But, but it was all about the status there. One of the inscriptions we have said, given by great Herodas Atticus, preeminent above others, who had attained the peak of every kind of excellence, famous among Hellenists, and furthermore, a son of Greece, greater than them all, the flower of Achaia, Pretty self-serving. Guy's a little full of himself. That was the culture of these letters of commendation. And Paul is saying, it's not about being full of myself. It's about what God's doing in your heart. We are living letters to the work of God. We are living letters from every person that has invested in our lives. From every person that has taught us, that has ministered with us, that has spent time with us. And, and poured into us Jesus Christ. He goes on, you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. And, and catch what he's saying there because it's all so significant. Who's the author? Christ. He's saying, I'm not the author. Christ is the author. I'm the minister, the deliverer. I, I'm the scribe, we, we could think of it as. And the ink, the ink is the Holy Spirit on your heart. My prayer for us as a church is that the Holy Spirit is changing hearts. That He is writing Christ on your hearts. And as we serve, we're just simply scribes. Scribes are nothing. Scribes just pass on the message. The goal as we minister together, the goal as we smell together is changed hearts. I don't even really care about changed behavior as much as changed hearts. Because changed hearts will lead to changed behavior. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. As he wraps up in verse 4, 4 through 6, we come back to point 3. We can't do it on our own. We're Christ-dependent, not self-sufficient. And he comes back to that in verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And he comes back to, are, are we able to do this on our own? Do we have, are we sufficient for this incredible, awesome task of spreading the aroma of Christ to the whole world? His answer is actually no. 
You're not. I'm not. But Christ is. God is the source of the confidence. One author said, confidence and competence is what these verses are about. Confidence and competence. Sufficiency has this idea of being able to do something, being competent to do something. And there are times when we think of sharing the gospel, there's times sometimes I see my neighbor and I'm like, I don't know if I can share the gospel with him. You guys ever, ever, ever have that fear sometimes? You're like, what will he think? What, what if I get it wrong? I'm a pastor and I feel that sometimes. And I'm reminded, well, God gives the strength for that. He gives the confidence and the competence. Just go try it. The victory procession already has happened. He's already won. You know, you may be considering a ministry here at Village and getting involved in something and you're like, oh, that looks so overwhelming. There's like 2 million preschoolers or or whatever other ministry. And there's not 2 million. It's only like 20. It's easy. Um, (laughs) and, And you may be thinking, I don't know if I can do that. That's the great place to be. You can't. You can't teach a Sunday school class. You don't have enough strength. You can't teach the preschoolers. You can't be a great Awana leader great message, right? But with God's strength, you can do incredible things because he is a great teacher and he is a great Awana leader and he actually knows what to do with preschoolers. He equips. He enables those he calls. We've said that before. Don't be afraid to jump into a ministry. God enables don't be afraid to talk to your neighbor about Christ. Don't be afraid to at lunch talk with a coworker about Christ. God enables. The quote I put in your notes is divinely called means divinely equipped. We've got to stop waiting until I can do it on my own to jump in the pool. That's only good if it's an actual pool. Then yes, wait till you can swim. But in ministry, jump in and trust that God will do something. God wants to use our weaknesses. And that's going to be a theme in 2 Corinthians. He ends by saying, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. And he begins to talk, he's talking about the covenant of the cross of Jesus Christ as opposed to the law of the Old Testament. He says, not the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills and the spirit gives life. And it's a reminder of the Ten Commandments and the stone tablets and and the law in the Old Testament. Anyone kept all the laws of the Old Testament this week? Anyone kept all the Ten Commandments? John, talked to me afterwards. Thanks for the hand. Um, The law reminds us that we're broken, that we're sinners, that we can't do it on our own. The cross says, here's the answer. I've done it. I'm the general, not you. And when we focus on that, we ooze the smell of Jesus. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, a great passage. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The new covenant is about the Holy Spirit living in us, helping us live for God because we love him dearly. We can't be smelly people on our own. Well, we can be a certain kind of smell. In a good way, we can't have a fragrant aroma on our own. 
We have to be Christ-dependent, not self-sufficient. I want to end with two quotes. Two men that I love to read, godly men. Oswald Chambers. God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. Isn't that good? He wants to use nobodies. He'll use somebodies too, but either way, we have to rely completely on him. Martin Luther said, God creates out of nothing. Therefore, until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. We've got to be nothing before God. Strip away our pride. Strip away of our ideas of how things should be. Strip away my dependence on self. And say, God, use me however you want. Even if it means being smelly. What a great passage. Will you join me this week and every morning wake up and say, God, make me an aroma today. Make me smelly today. Let's just start there. Every morning, ask God to do that in our lives. And let's see what God does this week at our work, with each other, in our church, with our relationship with Him. Let's pray. Lord God, make us fragrant people that smell of You. Help us to be part of that victory parade and to be worshiping You and and make it so clear to everyone that we come in contact with that You are God and You died on the cross for our sins and it has changed our lives because we are your letter of commendation. Because your message is written on our hearts. And you said it's to be read by all. So Lord, as weird as it sounds, make us smelly people this week that serve and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.